All right, we've got a couple of announcements. First of all, to remind you that Betty Smith's uh, celebration of life, her memorial service is going to be this Saturday at 2 o'clock. And also, we're going to need, I think we're going to need some deacons, so you all need to check on who's going to be here. And then um, uh, there's going to be a fellowship after that. Also, men's prayer breakfast is going to resume after a couple of months when we were on hiatus due to the uh, uh, pastor's conference and also some other things in April. So that will be on May 15th. That's a week from this Saturday, uh, and that will be at 7.30 in the morning. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. What can man, uh, I will not be afraid, what can man do to me? Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We'll make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit. So as we worship through the study of God's Word this evening, we can make sure that we're worshiping by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, your grace is beyond anything that we could ask or think. Your love for us is unmeasurable and demonstrated through the cross that our sins are forgiven, they have been paid for, and that by faith in Jesus Christ alone we have everlasting life. And Father, we thank you for all that you have given us in this church age, the untold wealth of Christ that we have by being in him and we pray that we might not take this lightly, but that we might avail ourselves of all that we can learn and that we may apply it in our lives day in and day out. Father, we live in a world that is always in Satan's domain. For many of us, we grew up in a time when it was not, there was not so overt, not in your face, all of the evil that we see today. But Father, we live in a world that is progressively moving away from that biblical Judeo-Christian foundation that was bequeathed to us by our founding fathers. And we pray that we might be able to stand firm, that we might trust in you, and no matter what may come, we may have joy and peace and stability because our happiness is not grounded in anything in this world. It is based on our relationship with you, what you have done for us, and we are just here to represent you as ambassadors in the midst of a wicked and evil foreign country. So, Father, we pray that you would encourage us by what we study and help us to understand these things, for they are a warning to those who are beset by false teachers, which is surely true in this day, in this era. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 2, verse, we'll look at verses 17 to 21 this evening. One of the things that 
I never think about it because I'm just sort of oblivious to those things, but we have a lot of people who live stream, and I've consistently been told by people who are live streaming that they now have a 75-inch TV and that I am bigger than anything in their house. So they're probably looking at the screen right now going, what's wrong with his nose? Well, my mother always told me and warned me that one day I'd try to cut my nose off to spite my face, and I tried, I guess. So I have a Band-Aid on my nose. So that way nobody's going to get distracted by that and keep trying to look at the screen and say, well, what is that? It's a Band-Aid. All right, Second Peter. What we're looking at is the methodology of false teachers. They give false promises. They bait the trap. We have, it's interesting how things come together when we're teaching through different passages, whether we've been in Judges on Tuesday night, to some degree, to a little degree in Ephesians, but mostly it's been Tuesday night and Thursday night, Judges and Second Peter, and what we've been studying about the false teachers on Thursday night is illustrated by how Israel was baited and snared and trapped by all of the uh, extremely lewd and lascivious uh, uh, worship involved with the fertility cults in the ancient world. So there's, there's a lot of back and forth, and we saw that because uh, Israel failed to follow through with God's command to completely annihilate the, Canaan, annihilate the Canaanite population, that God punished them by saying that he would leave them there as a snare, as a thorn in their side and as a snare. And we talked about a snare is a trap. And so many words that we find in Second Peter and other words that relate to temptation are words that use this kind of, of imagery. And so that's the picture that we have in some of the verses we're looking, looking at tonight is how these false teachers are setting a trap. And, you know, the best traps are those that the, uh, that the victim does not r- realize is a trap. They're, they're camouflaged. They're covered over. They're made to look as if they are something else. And right in the middle of the trap is something that is extremely appealing to persons and yet when the uh, animal approaches the trap, he's not going to get what he thinks he's going to get. And that's exactly what is the uh, backstory here is uh, Peter is warning them that those who have been seduced and entrapped by these false promises are not going to realize that which was promised to them. They're not going to have life. They're not going to have happiness and stability. They're not going to have greater prosperity. They're not going to have all of the things that are promised by these false teachers, but instead they're going to find an absolute emptiness in life. They're going to find just the opposite. They'll be miserable. They'll go through divine uh, discipline if they are believers. They'll go through suffering the consequences of sin if they are unbelievers, and it will be tragic and devastating to their lives. So that is the warning that Peter is giving them. So just to remind us of the basic structure of this second chapter, he warned of the certainty of false teachers. There were false prophets among the people, that is among Israel, as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive 
heresies. And so we see the destructiveness of that described in the next two verses, the last half of verse 1 and the next two verses. And that's what's going to be illustrated even more among believers when we get into this section from 17 uh, down through the actual end of the chapter 22 is how it is self-destructive to be seduced and entrapped by the teaching of these false teachers. And so we have the destructiveness of deception and then the illustrations, the three illustrations he gave from the Old Testament on the certainty of judgment. But the promise comes in the uh, apodosis of the if-then clause in verse 9, and the promise is really the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of testing and to reserve uh, the unjust, the unjustified literally under punishment for the day of judgment, which is the great white throne judgment. Now, we have to just get an overview of what's going on in chapter 1 and chapter 2 in order to solve a couple of problems we're getting ready to face in verse 18. First of all, we have to look at who who's involved in this epistle. Who are the groups that are involved? Well, the first is not a group, it's one person, and that's Peter, who is the author. And Peter is described in, in the first verse of chapter 1, and he identifies himself as Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. And then that's one group, and he may include himself using what was called an authorial or epistolary uh, plural, where he uses we where he's in, talking about himself primarily, but including the audience. Then we have his audience. This is described in the second part of verse 1, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now that is an extremely strong statement because he's writing to an audience the majority of which he assumes are believers. Now, there may be the odd unbeliever or young person who hadn't trusted in Christ yet, but, but he views the church as a body of believers because he says that they have uh, obtained this like faith by the righteousness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I would take that to mean that that they obtained the the precious faith is not talking about the saving faith. It's either talking about sanctification faith or more likely he's talk, it's talking about a body of doctrine. As we may talk about the faith that is expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith. This was an extremely lengthy uh, doctrinal statement, theological statement of belief for the Anglican Church that was put together in the 1640s in England to be the foundation for the belief of the Anglican Church, and it was written by the, the Puritans that were within the Anglican Church. This was during the time when Cromwell was the protector, in the protectorate of Cromwell. So, um, you have 
the word faith used in that sense for the body of belief, that, that which a person believes. So uh, the audience is those who obtained like precious faith, a body of doctrine, a body of belief with us by means of the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's how we are all saved is we have received the righteousness of Christ. We've been clothed with his righteousness. So God looks at us and he doesn't look at the fact that we are sinners experientially, but at the, fa- at the fact that we are clothed with his righteousness. And because of that, he can from the judicial bench of the Supreme Court of Heaven, he declares us to be righteous. Not because we are changed internally. That was the Roman Catholic view, the idea of infused righteousness. But it is because we have been, in, this righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us, and that's the basis. So he's looking at them as believers. And this is clear from the second person pronouns that he uses. Second person pronouns are you or y'all or you plural, however uh, you understand that. But when he is addressing them and he has various, uh, uh, various terms, he will address them as you, or, and it's usually in the plural. He has places like down in verse 16 where he's talking about himself. He says, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables. That would be the we, the apostles, but we made known to you, that is you all, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's group one is Peter. Group two is the audience made up of believers And then the third group that is really the focal point of the epistle are these false teachers that he warns about in the beginning of chapter 2 that there will be these false teachers among you. And they're mentioned in 2 Peter 2, 1. And then throughout the chapter, they are the reference point for his third person plural pronouns. Now, this is important this, it, because sometimes when people are talking and they are using uh, demonstrative pronouns such as these are those, when you get farther and farther away from the ultimate reference point, it can become a little fuzzy as to what they're actually referring to. And that happens in writing, it happens in speaking, and it happens when we get into verse 18. Because, and you can only analyze it well by really looking at the context. And I'll describe its importance when we get there. So the, throughout this chapter, you have they and them. Uh, that's the focus. In 2.12, look at that. This is in where, where we pick up our context. But these... These who? These are the false teachers, like natural brute beasts to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand. So that's referring to these false false teachers. Now, you don't have a clear reference here. One thing that's been driving me nuts in this section of Peter is that you have very, very few finite verbs. A finite verb is a verb that where when you conjugate it, it has a first person plural, second person singular, third person singular. Participles don't have that. Participles come in two kinds. They're either modifying a noun 
or they're modifying a verb. That which modifies a verb is called an adverb. Most of these are adverbial participles. But Peter goes five verses with nothing but participles. And you're trying to figure out who's he talking about, what's the significance of this adverbial participle, because he just strings all of these sort of uh, dependent clauses together, and you get lost in the maze of participles. And it's important to know just exactly what these mean and, and how things go together. And so you have the but these is a clear statement of the, the, the subject, these false teachers, and you the uh, translators usually put days in there in order to um, clarify it. But when you get down to verse 15 and it says, um, uh, they have forsaken, it's a participle. There's no they there in the original. So it, it really gets somewhat confusing. You get down to 217, and then it reads, these are wells without water. We, did, we stopped right before we got to verse 17 last week, and it's a clear statement. You have a third-person plural demonstrative pronoun, these, and then you have a finite verb, are. And so that until you, that, that's verse 17. Well, he's gone from 12 to 17 without giving you a clear understanding of who the reference is to. So it's easy. I mean, you've got translations that'll put things in there so you don't get lost. But then when you start looking at it in the original, you realize, oh, they're not there in the original. It's just a string of these participles. Um, verse 18 he adds another clear uh, finite verb, they allure. That's a third person plural, or they seduce or entice. And then 2.19, he makes it clear and he says, they themselves. Well, that is, the reason all of this is important is because when you're looking at 2.18, when he says, they allure through the lust of the flesh through, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. So you have a they, or actually the ones, and you have a those who live in error. And who are they? And there's two positions taken. There are, the, there are many, and I would say maybe most commentaries, take them all to refer to the false teachers in which case you will end up in either lordship salvation or the quicksand of legalism. And then uh, there are others who take it that this is referring, it's a shift moving from the false teachers to the weak or carnal believers who get seduced by their false teaching. So that all becomes very important. So that's really the fourth point here. Who are the ones who have actually escaped? Who are they? And what have they escaped? Is that real salvation or what's that talking about? And then you have the phrase, following, uh, you have this whole phrase, uh, those, the ones who have actually escaped from, and then you have uh, another phrase that is there that refers to from those who live in error. Who is that? Those who live in error. So this gets somewhat, uh, somewhat confusing. 
So we need to just sit back and just review a little bit and walk along the trail, and it'll all make perfectly good sense. So we'll go back to verse 2, just kind of hit the high points. But these. So what happens in verse 4 down through verse 11, one long sentence, and he's dealing with three illustrations to illustrate, on the one hand, a group of believers who are delivered, where God delivers the just, the justified, out of temptation, versus another group that is not delivered, but they go through serious divine condemnation because they are uh, either not believers or they are the fallen angels who are ultimately destined for the lake of fire, according to uh, Matthew twenty-five forty-six, the lake of fire that has been already prepared for the devil and his angels. And so he starts up again now talking about the subject of the chapter mentioned back in verse 1, the false teachers. But these, that is, these false teachers are then likened to uh, brute beasts, and as I translated this last time, irrational creatures by nature who were born to be caught and destroyed and who will utterly perish in their own corruption. And so we looked at the words that were involved there, and at the end, they, they are described as those who speak evil. They blasphemeo, blaspheme, they revile, they show disrespect for God. Uh, they speak, uh, it's translated speak evil several times, which indicates that at least the translator understood that that should always be translated the same way, so you'd know it's always the Greek word. That they speak evil of the things they do not understand and then it says they will be destroyed in their own corruption. Extremely strong language. Peter just outdoes himself in terms of dramatic descriptions through this section to help us understand just how excessively evil and horrible and destructive and corrupt these false teachers are and where that will lead you if you succumb to that false teaching. The only thing is that I have found in my somewhat limited experience is those who have taken the bait don't realize it. And you can talk to, I can talk till I'm blue in the face telling them that they're, they have been seduced by false teachers and they're just like that stupid sheep we saw in the video I showed the other night and they just leap right back into the same garbage, which is I'll have to resurrect that video to show in Peter next time because that's, that's like the, the, the proverb that is mentioned at the end of the chapter in verse 22 of a dog returning to his own vomit. And, um, and that's not a pretty picture. Every time I read that verse, some of you know this story, but, but there was a pastor I grew up under who, who was not always the most tactful. And he was one of the uh, most prominent of the students under Lewis Berry Chafer. And Chafer warned that Dallas Seminary should never do certain things. And they did all of them. 
And so he was asked by Charlie Clough and George Meisinger to come up and and to give the message at a banquet for the graduating seniors. Dow Seminary had a morning uh, breakfast banquet for all the graduating seniors. And in his most winsome, tactful manner, he chose that verse as the topic of his message and applied it to what Dallas Seminary was doing. He did not win any friends or influence any people in that message. I'll tell you a little more about that when we actually get to it, but that was, that's one of those infamous events that a lot, of, a lot of y'all who grew up under him as well would have uh, probably never knew anything about. I am to be in high school when it happened and heard all the stories. So anyhow, so verse 12 really takes us into this next section, which I pointed out last time. And just to make sure we can track the third person plural pronouns, the these and the days I have highlighted in blue. These men... uh, the fall, are the false teachers, and they will be destroyed in their own corruption. Then verse 13 says, and will receive. So the subject of that is still the false teachers. They will receive the wages of their unrighteousness as those, that those refers to the day and the these. I should have highlighted that in blue. As those who counted pleasure to the carouse in the daytime. Uh, oh, I know why I didn't highlight those is because they're not in the original. They've been added by the uh, translator to, so it makes a little more sense to people. They are spots. Again, that they is not in the original. It just says spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions. And again, there's no they in that next clause. It's underlined. It's a participle. Their own uh, deceptions. And that participle, (coughs) and this is important, we'll come back to this, just to clarify, straighten out, and and these these, um, vague, ambiguous participles, uh, carousing in their own deceptions, and then it's translated correctly, it should be a temporal participle, while feasting with you, and then... And I realized when I was going through this 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 afternoon that I skipped verse 14 last week. So we're going to look at that in detail in a minute. Having eyes of adultery. See, it's a participle. But in the construction, it goes with the first one. While feasting with you and having eyes full of adultery. So it pictures some kind of of a feast, some kind of a, a banquet, and everybody's carousing and getting drunk, and they're looking around for an adulteress. That's what, it, it's not adultery, it is a feminine form of the noun, adulteresses. So while they're feasting, they're looking around for some woman who will run away with them for a few minutes. And they cannot cease from sin. <coughs> and enticing unstable souls. And then there's no period there, just goes to the next, the next uh, participle. But uh, you get the point from this slide that we have to track that, and all the way through here it's referring to the same group of false teachers. So that, 
that is our line so we can properly interpret this. So we look at verse 14, which as I just said, I didn't cover last week. It starts off with this participle. The, the Greek word is echo, which is translated by that word having. Uh, echo means to have or to hold something. And it is probably a continuation of the temporal participle at the end of verse 13. So that's called an attendant circumstance. So it would most clearly be translated, while feasting with you, they have eyes full of adultery. That communicates the the strength of what's going on there. And then the next thing is the word enticing, which here is used as it's also a participle. And it means to lure or to bait a trap, to beguile someone, to seduce someone. And it's used again in verse 18. Let me read verse 18 to you. So when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh. Now two things make it very clear that the they that's being referred to there are the false teachers. One is uh, they allure. It's the same word that's used here. So that connects you back to those who are um, seeking to entice or allure or seduce unstable souls. The second thing is they have these swelling uh, words We'll look at that in a minute. Uh, The swelling words of um, emptiness at the beginning of verse 18 says the swelling words of emptiness and the words there for when they speak are the same word that's used to describe the speaking of Balaam's dumb, that is mute, ass. So see, he's drawing a connection there that those who are uh, seducing them, that their preaching is like the braying of a dumb ass. Okay. So back to verse 14. While feasting with you, they have eyes full of adulteresses, literally, and unceasing sin. A very negative description of these false teachers for the purpose. And that next uh, participle translated uh, in, to entice is the part, part, word we'll see again in verse 18. And it should be, that participle should be translated as a, a purpose participle for the purpose of enticing unstable soul. So that's the picture. They're going and they're going to this party. They're having a lot to drink. They're having a great time. All the while they are cruising for some woman they can go get away with for a little while. And their purpose is to entice or seduce unstable souls. And as I pointed out last time when we were looking at Balaam, uh, the appeal is to the sexual sins. That's what Balaam's major sin was at the end, was he whispered in in Balak's ears, the king of Moab, that the way that he can really destroy the Jews is to turn his uh, uh, 
religious prostitutes loose on the Jews so that he will uh, get them distracted through their lusts. And so that's the, the comparison with these false teachers. And then you have another participle, and there it's the same uh, participle we have earlier for have, and it just should be translated as a cause because they have, why are they doing this? Because they have hearts trained in covetous practices. This is their habit pattern. This is how they have disciplined and trained themselves because the word translated uh, uh, train is the verb gumnazo from which we get our word gymnasium and is used for the training of athletes. So that's what he is, what Peter is saying here. Trying to sway the false teachers to the truth is a fruitless cause because their hearts are mired and enslaved in their depravity and they have been disciplined in uh, their covetous practices. So that takes us back to verse 13. I wanted to get 14 covered. They will receive the rages of unrighteousness as those who count it practice uh, pleasure to carouse in the daytime and their spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. And then that went on to say, um, while while they feast with you and while they are, um, where's 14? while they are having eyes full of adulteresses. Then we get to verse 15, and it reads another participle, because they abandoned the right way, and they went astray by following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of righteousness. And the way of Balaam is the path he took, in the sense that it's used figuratively here, he was over in Mesopotamia, over not too far probably from Babylon, and they hire him. He is a diviner. Now that word for a diviner, I didn't point this out last week, that word for a diviner is never used in a positive way in the Old Testament. It's always used for some idolatrous uh, false uh, prophet. And so he is a diviner, but he, nevertheless God's going to control what he could say and as soon as he found out they were going to pay him a lot of money, he ran down that path as fast as he could go. And so that's sort of a play on words here, following the path of Balaam. He ran down the path as fast as he could go to get that, uh, get, get his payoff, and that's what these false teachers are doing. Like Balaam, they loved the wages of unrighteousness. And he's rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey, uh, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness. We covered that last time, that, that when you're divorced from the truth of God's word, you're divorced from reality, and that's the beginning of a form of insanity. If you follow that, it leads to emotional and mental problems, and the cure is not going to a psychologist or a counselor. The cure, cure is getting into the word of God and letting your soul be cured by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So I said that Balaam illustrates three features of the false teachers. The motive is money. It's all about the money, honey. Prosperity, name it and claim it. God will make you rich. Then he wants to undermine the Word of God. 
And he's going to do that with false prophecies and with words of wisdom and knowledge and all of these other things. And he's going to tell the uh, the Moabites just how they can destroy the Israelites. And he will do that by appealing to the baser lusts of the sin nature. That is, we've seen this cycle so many times throughout the history of Christianity that you, you can't count it up. It happens over and over again in subgroup and subgroup and within churches and all kinds of things. So then they are described in verse 17 as wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So it begins with a very clear third-person plural near demonstrative pronoun. All you grammar lovers will love that. These. The these goes back to verse 12. These are wells without water, clouds carried by tempest. Now what in the world do these two metaphors depict? Because there's not a lot of similar examples anywhere in the scripture. But what we do have uh, in the scripture is uh, something similar. There's a lot of dis- lot of things to using water in a figurative way to refer to eternal life, to refer to the life of the spirit, to refer to that which brings life. But before I get into explaining those, I want to explain the last part. He says, "For whom is reserved the blackness?" of darkness. So we're going to look at that, and it begins with this relative pronoun, and that relative pronoun host is a plural. So that refers to the these, and that refers to the these of verse 12, and it refers to the false teachers of verse 1. These are, and for whom is reserved And that word is a word, tereo, which is used in some passages related to eternal security because it it has that idea of keeping and strengthening and protecting something. But it also has that idea of holding something. And that's the idea here, keeping it. Uh, For whom is kept? That would probably be the best way to translate that. For whom is kept? The blackness of darkness forever. And the interesting thing is when we look at Tereo is to note that in its parsing it is a perfect passive indicative. Now the passive voice indicates that somebody else is doing the keeping. Somebody else created this, somebody else is preserving it, and that somebody else of course is God. And the perfect tense indicates that it is something that was completed in the past and is still present in the present time. So that's why I translated it, for whom is already reserved. Matthew 25, 46 tells us that uh, the goats are going to be cast, at the sheep and the goats' judgment, are going to be cast into the lake of fire, which was created for the devil and his angels. Again, it's a perfect tense. It's already been created. It's already there. 
And this terminology, the blackness of darkness, the tip, standard word for just darkness, which would stand for blackness also in a normal situation, is the word skotos. But this, the blackness, is the Greek word zaphos, and that described the netherworld. This is uh, where the dead go. It is uh, in, in the mythology of Greek and Roman, Greco-Roman mythology, it's, the, it's in the center of the earth. And so it is the pl- also location in Scripture in 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 1.6 of the angels who did not keep their first estate, the sons of God of Genesis chapter 6 are now imprisoned in this kind of deep, gloomy darkness. So this is describing uh, the holding jail prior to being sent to the lake of fire. And you say, well, as I pointed out last time, blackness doesn't mean there's no fire there. We think of fire as that which illuminates, but this is fire. There will be fire there that does not bring light, that does not illuminate. And uh, so these, this tells us that they are reserved for this eternal judgment. The first part, you have the imagery of these, this phrase, wells without water, clouds carried by a storm a wind, carried by a wind. So um, in Jude 12, we read, they are clouds without water, similar language, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead and pulled up by the roots. So in both places, the writers are describing something, a tree, uh, uh, what a uh, 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 windstorm, the clouds that seem to uh, promise one thing, but don't deliver. Trees that promise fruit, but there's no fruit. A storm that just produces a lot of wind, but no rain. A well that promises water, but the well is empty. And this fits a standard theme in Scripture, an example of which comes out of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 14, 3 and 4 states, Their nobles have sent their lads for water. They went to the cisterns and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads because the ground is parched for there was no rain in the land, the plowmen were ashamed, they covered their heads. The picture is, uh, the water is used as a symbol in this for the lack of spiritual truth in Israel at the time. So that not only is the land parched as part of the third, di- third uh, cycle of discipline, but it is also indicating that the people are parched because they don't have God's word. And so that's what these, uh, these phrases are talking about in verse 17. Wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest. There's no water. There's no life. There's no message of life. This is, you have water used many times in, um, in the Gospel of John to describe eternal life, that 
Uh, when somebody trusts in Christ, God, Christ promises that in the future they'll have the Holy Spirit and out of them will flow rivers of living water. And so this is, depicts the fact that they have that all they have is death. They have no life whatsoever. And they are reserved for eternal judgment. So let's go back to our opening four points. You have Peter, who's the I, or Peter in association with the apostles, the, the we. Then you have his audience, those who have obtained precious faith with us. And those are viewed as believers and as maturing believers. And then you have the false teachers. But you have a fourth group, and the fourth group helps us to understand what we're going to run into in verse 18. The ones who have actually escaped. You know, those uh, from whom that we see in, in verse 18, escape from those who live in error. Those who live in error are, that's a question we have to ask. So that's really talking about another group. So you have a group of weak believers who are seduced by the false teachers, and then those from... Um, from those who live in error refers to another group, and we'll look at that in just a minute. So let's look at verse 18. Uh, Verse 18 says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure, I like the word seduce better, they seduce through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped. So the ones who have actually escaped are the object of the seduction. And they have escaped, it says, from those who live in error. Okay, so let's try to make some sense of this. First of all, it starts with the Greek word gar or for, and that is either going to give us a cause for something or it's going to explain why something was said before. So it's going to explain uh, verse really verses 12 through 17. And it's talking about these false teachers, the wells without water, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And it says, for when they speak, and the when they speak it is uh, a participle. So we're going to, and it's a temporal participle. So we'll just skip that for right now because the main verb, and it's as an adverbial participle, it's going to modify the main verb. But here the adverb comes first. They allure, and this is the same word we, we saw earlier, and it is the word for entice, to bait a trap, to seduce. And it's in the third person plural. So that is clearly referring back to the false teachers who are the ones who are doing the seduction. Then we have uh, the word translated when they speak, and this is a present middle participle, and it's a plural. So I underlined participle and I underlined plural because it's a plural is going adverb is going to have a plural reference so that's going to be a reference to the they the false teachers and since it is an ad- ad- adverbial it it attaches itself to the main verb which is uh, to seduce 
So we know that the great swelling words are the words of these false teachers. Now, the word that is translated there, phlegomai, is the same word that was used back there in describing uh, uh, Balaam and who d- describing the donkey who was speaking with a man's voice. So there, Peter's making a comparison between them and Balaam's ass. And then the next word is matayotes, which is a word that means emptiness or purposelessness. In its sense of emptiness, it has the idea, it's translated vanity in the old King James, but it has the idea of, of a vacuum. And we all know that nature abhors a vacuum. And so when there is a vacuum, it is always going to suck things into it. And so these words of emptiness create a vacuum and it is sucking these weak believers into it. That is the imagery that is there. And so they are speaking these words of emptiness, these words of, of, uh, of, of a vacuum, and by that, they seduce through the lusts of the flesh. That would be an appeal to all of the sensual sins. It's translated clearly. Then The next word makes it clear through lewdness. And uh, lewdness is a word that describes a multitude of, uh, of sins. Now, here I've put in a, to explain this participle and the phrase there when they speak great swelling words of emptiness. It's uh, somewhat difficult to translate the idiom. So I put in some uh, various ways other English versions have translated it. The English Standard Version translates it when they speak loud boasts of folly. And see, that picks up the idea of arrogance that is very much present there. The New American Standard calls it speaking out arrogant words of vanity. Vanity means emptiness. It's from the word vain. So they're picking up that idea of emptiness with vanity. The New uh, uh, English Translation, the Net Bible, uh, translates it high-sounding but empty words. And the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it boastful, empty words. So with all of that, you get an idea. You can go to a couple of different Christian channels on your television and watch any number of televangelists, and you'll get a perfect illustration of what this means. Uh, they are using their uh, bombastic, arrogant language to promote heresy and false teaching. Now, the word lewdness, that is through lewdness, and that's the, what is in, that's the bait in the trap. And the word aselgeia has a range of meanings and ways in which it's translated, and it's translated as sensuality, as unbridled lust, excess, licentiousness, Now, licentiousness and lasciviousness are close synonyms. Licentiousness is based on the English word license. Lasciviousness is based on the Latin word for license. 
So they both, both mean the same thing, and that means that people who think they have a license to sin, I've been saved, Christ uh, paid the penalty for my sin, so I can just go do whatever I want to do. So grace may abound. That is the rhetorical question that Paul begins Romans 6 with, and then he answers it with a very strong negative, uh, meganoita, which means not at all. So uh, this is what lasciviousness is, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness, and it all has to do with sexual uh, licentiousness. And so it is through licentiousness and lasciviousness the, the ones have, who have actually escaped from those who live in terror. So they bait the trap. They attract the ones who have already escaped from those who live in error. So who are the, uh, who are the ones who have actually escaped and who are those who live in error? Well, let's start with those who live in error. This is not talking about the fact that they're presently living in error when they are seduced, but that they escaped something. They are believers. I'll show you why, why that's true in just a minute. They are believers who, when they trusted Christ, what happened? They escaped the devil's world. That's what this is talking about. The world around us isn't a nice world. Uh, we lived in a time of unprecedented God, blessing of God for almost 300 years from the 1600s up through the 1900s. And, um, and from much of that time, we experienced the blessing of God, and it was a wonderful place to be a Christian. I guess it's about four, uh, uh, 400 years up to 2000. And then things really started to fall apart. All the signs were there from the 50s and 60s, but if you didn't know what you were looking for, you didn't see them. I have been reading over the last few years, going back and reading some of Dr. Francis Schaeffer's original uh, first books that were really transcripts of, of, of some messages that he gave uh, back in the late 60s and early 70s. Like like many many pastors and teachers, he did, was didn't have the time to write out his own stuff, so people would transcribe it, and then some. As somebody recently put it in a headline, which I thought was interesting. He had a holy ghostwriter, and many do. I mean, all those books that Charles Swindoll wrote, he didn't write a word of them. All those books that Pastor Theme wrote, he didn't write them either. All those books John MacArthur's written, he didn't write any of them. Either. Pastors don't have time to write. It's it it is incredibly difficult. And all of those people, Billy Graham didn't write one of those books. His ghostwriters did, and of course they based it on what he what they these people taught and what they said. And but but they uh, didn't have time to to uh, I mean the pastors or teachers or evangelists didn't have time to to do that at all. So um, you had all all of these uh, various uh, writers doing doing that. Uh, but we live in the devil's world now. It's all blatant now. Uh, I mean, what was, I was getting off onto something, making a point. Francis Schaeffer, it's amazing. You read what he wrote in 1968, and it's like he wrote it yesterday. He understood we had shifted from modernism to postmodernism and where that was going to go. Pastor Theme did as well. 
I mean, you listen to some things. He knew he he thought it was going to happen in 1970s, but he was a little early. Uh, but he understood that. And there are a number of other people who have done that as well. They perceived that we turned a major corner. We had been turning it for about 50 years, and we completed the turn around 1963 or 1964. And after we made that turn in Western civilization, perceptive pastors and teachers understood just exactly where it was headed, and we're almost there. And it's going to lead to just the collapse of Western civilization unless the Lord comes back, and then that will collapse. That will finish it off. So verse 18, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they seduce through the lusts of the flesh, through lasciviousness, the, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. So that's the devil's world. And it has become more overt. We had about almost 400 years where we were protected. And now we see what really is behind the curtain. It's the God of this age that runs this world. Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, talking about unbelievers whose minds the God of this age is blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Ephesians 2.2 calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. 1 John 5.19 says that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And that includes the United States of America, and it has always included the United States of America. It's just that we began with a with forefathers who were focused on God's word, and so it appeared to be different. And now people are shocked because we're acting like everybody else in the world. John twelve thirty one, Jesus called him the ruler of this world. John fourteen thirty, he repeated that. Twice. Let's make a point that everybody remembers. He, Satan is the ruler of this world. And until Jesus Christ returns at the second coming to establish his kingdom on this earth, Satan will be the ruler of this world. So we'll come back next time and look at the next verses, the next four verses dealing with the nature of these false teachers, and that will should bring us to an end of chapter, uh, chapter 2. Father, thank you for the fact that we have these descriptions in your word of the way the world really is, that we live in an evil, wicked world that is under the control of Satan. But nevertheless, you have penetrated the world with light, with truth, with the body of Christ, and that we have a tremendous mission as ambassadors from the high court of heaven to take the gospel of the cross, the gospel of grace to the world. That is our mission, not to love the world, not to, be get, not to get comfortable with the world, not to enjoy our stay here, but to fulfill our mission. And Father, we need to watch out for the traps that Satan has set, the way he baits them uh, to appeal to our sin nature to get us off course. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to truly see the issues as they are defined biblically. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.